I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated myself. I see a great nation upon a great continent, blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Ratified in 2020. Wow, it is a new year full of new content to explore, new laws to break down, legislation to to really, you know, get into the nitty-gritty on, see how it intersects with the business world, and I'm really looking forward to a whole new year of Ratified. So, per usual, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and uh, just wanted to give y'all... Uh, First, a thank you for listening along and for being, uh, you know, part of the audience here. That is uh, exploring a really important side of the business world, in my opinion. Uh, often here at MarketScale, we do a lot of B2B content, uh, but not often do we get those deep dives on, okay, what about the legislation that might impact this industry or, um, you know, this technology or uh, this specific sect of the market. So that's what this show is for, and that's what we're going to continue to do is look at the nitty-gritty of each industry and some of the biggest legislation coming through or uh, really how policy can influence both the largest and smallest aspects of the market. So thanks again for listening along. So uh, in 2020, we've got a lot of content coming up per usual, uh, and we have several topics already on deck. So I wanted to give you all a quick little tease on what those might look like. So we're definitely going to be doing some follow-ups on AB5 in 2020. That is the uh, gig economy bill that was passed in California. We did our first episode on that bill, uh, but the bill continues to evolve uh, and affect the state in different ways. So we're going to be doing a breakdown on that. We're going to be looking at casinos in Texas. We're going to be looking at e-waste policy across the board in the United States. We're maybe going to be diving into the four-day work week, growth in the cannabis industry. I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, Sticky situations here to break down, and so I'm looking forward to getting that on the show. Make sure to follow along at uh, at Voice of B2B, that is on Twitter, as well as at MarketScale, also on Twitter. So that's my Twitter and the company's Twitter, respectively. You can tweet at me. You can DM me. I have my DMs open specifically for this show. Uh, so if you have any topics you want to cover, people you think I should interview or scoops I should be following, hit me up because I will be diligent. All right, folks, so on this episode, we're going to be taking a final look at the proposed Sprint and T-Mobile merger. So again, we're doing Sprint and T-Mobile merger today. So by early February, we should know whether or not the carrier industry will be left with three key players. That'd be AT&T, Verizon, and on the horizon, uh, you know, rhyme, I guess, intended there, new T-Mobile, which would be Sprint and T-Mobile merged. So why are these two companies, Sprint and T-Mobile, trying to merge? What's the context behind it all? And what are the potential long-lasting effects for the telecom industry? We're going to go ahead and break this down on the preamble real quick. So for a while now, AT&T and Verizon have dominated the wireless carrier market, expanding their physical reach and their services. Relatively left behind have been T-Mobile and Sprint, claiming a lack of spectrum infrastructure is poised to leave, uh, leave them even further in the dust of competition. The two companies have been strapped 
for cash, facing rising costs to expand their carrier services, costs that they're arguing are unsustainable. So their proposed solution, a solution that they've been eyeing since at least 2014, is to merge, become one company. T-Mobile would consume Sprint for about $26 billion, combining their reach, their infrastructure, and their customers to build a powerful third player in the wireless carrier market. And if they merge, T-Mobile and Sprint claim competition will become more fruitful and in turn will lower costs and increase quality of service not just for their customers, but across the board for the whole industry. So the merger was officially proposed in 2018. In May of 2019, it got the unofficial blessing of the FCC. In July, it got the blessing of the Department of Justice. Then in October, the FCC officially approved the merger in a vote 3-2. to two. Relatively smooth sailing for the merger at first, but uh, that was just at first. Not everyone shared that optimism. 14 states, led by New York and California's state attorneys general, vehemently disagreed with the assessment that such a merger would be good for the market and for consumers. So they filed a lawsuit to take the companies and their proposed merger to court. The state AGs are calling it, quote, common sense that the merger would harm low-income consumers and reduce incentives for competition. So to meet those concerns initially, the DOJ put a caveat on the merger. They're saying new T-Mobile would have to support Dish Network. That is, you know, everyone's everyone's already uh, familiar with Dish, I hope. Dish Network is going to now become the fourth player in the carrier market, leasing out network capacity for it to build a business model and infrastructure to support its entrance into the market for several years. The state AGs still weren't satisfied with this remedy, and they pushed on. FCC chairman Ajit Pai and proponents of the merger point to the country's most rural areas as the ones that would benefit from a merger like this for the simple reason that it would be the incentive to get a, quote, transformative 5G network to the United States. That's according to T-Mobile CEO John Legere. While the merger waits in ruling limbo, we have to look at the broader implications of what mergers like this mean for their industries, how a consolidated wireless carrier market would impact workers and consumers, and whether this is going to have the resoundingly positive impact that T-Mobile, Sprint, and Ajit Pai are vouching for. So per usual, we're getting two important perspectives on this merger. Later in the show, we'll be chatting with Hugh Odom. Again, Hugh Odom. He's the president of Vertical Consultants, which is a cell tower consulting firm. Hugh uh, was a former attorney of 10 years for AT&T's Western U.S. region. So he's going to help us better understand how a potential T-Mobile and Sprint merger is being received from within the carrier industry to get that inter-industry look, as well as some different tiered scenarios for what an, uh, an AT&T, Verizon, new T-Mobile, and DISH-led market would mean for small carriers. But to begin our show, we're joined by Lawrence J. White. He is a Robert Cavish Professor of Economics at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's also an author of at least eight major, uh, major publications, an editor or co-editor on at least 12 volumes, and has an extensive career in antitrust economics, topped off in the early 80s with a stint as the director of the Economic Policy Office's Antitrust Division for the U.S. Department of Justice. So on Ratified, Professor White and I are going to break down one of his more recent working papers through the NET Institute, which was titled... Quote, assessing DOJ's proposed remedy in Sprint T-Mobile. Can ex-ante competitive conditions in wireless markets be restored? That is the main question here. 
So, I would like to welcome Professor Lawrence J. White to the program. Professor White, thank you so much for joining us. Are you there? I am indeed. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And let me say, I think you've given a very uh, uh, robust uh, description of the state of play on this merger so far. Okay, well, good. I was That was honestly my first question. I was going to say, how do you think my summary was? So I, I, well, I appreciate uh, it. Well, you know, uh, hey, I'm a, I'm a professor. Uh, I'll have to give it an A. Okay. Uh, no question. <laughs> Love uh, it. Hey, no question. That's no good. Question. That's good for the GPA. All right. So well, there you go. <laughs> so to start off, Professor White, um, I think to better understand the context of your response working paper that we're going to break down here in a second, uh, I think it'd be best if you could give us a brief summary of the DOJ's proposed remedy um, and a few of the more important specifics. So we'll break down the implication of each of those specifics here in a bit. So feel free to give a more cursory view here to start of just what the remedy is proposing, and then we'll get into the specifics. Sure. Let me just point out that the document you described, one, it's available on the uh, net, of course. Uh, it was filed with the Justice Department as part of its proceeding in October, and a modified version of that document uh, was also fi filed with the federal district court judge that is hearing the state attorneys general case that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm. So this document is not only just an academic, uh, you know, posted on the web uh, uh, piece of work, but it's actually been filed with the Justice Department as well as with the judge that is hearing the state AG case. So now, um, Basically, the Justice Department proposal is after acknowledging that if the merger went through un unmodified, uh, it would be in the parlance that antitrust lawyers like to use a four to three merger where we have four major competitors now. There would be only three and the Justice Department is very clear that would be anti-competitive. Uh, prices would go up or would fail to fall as much as they otherwise would. Innovation uh, could be stifled, the, you know, uh, a reduction of competition. And so what the Justice Department proposed in July was that uh, there would be a fourth replacement provider that would be a full facilities provider. That's that's crucial to have your own network, to have your own spectrum, to have your own cell towers. You're not just buying from one of the incumbents and reselling, because if you do that, you're at the mercy of the uh, guy who owns the network. You have to own your own network. DISH would be that entity. Um, the uh, DISH would have the ability to buy Spectrum from uh, Sprint so that it would have that you know, basic building block for any network, the Spectrum, as well as buying uh, some uh, cell towers and some facilities from Sprint and getting as a starting out matter uh, not the nine, the brand name of Boost 
and the 9 million customers that are currently Boost customers and the office facilities and personnel that go along with with, uh, Boost. Mm. So that is the basic Justice Department proposal. They proposed that in July. Uh, In our document, we say, look, Justice Department, you acknowledge this is an anti-competitive merger. Unfortunately, your proposal is not going to fix that problem. All um, right. Yeah. No. And is... oh no. And well, it, so I, I think that's perfect right there. And now I'm about to okay. uh, guide you through some of you know those main points in your proposed. Uh, Proposed remedy to the remedy, right? <laughs> so yep. what's, what's interesting about the merger is, like you said initially, the DOJ released that detailed complaint showing every reason why said merger would be a net loss for the market and the consumer, and it would be anti-competitive. And then to remedy the complaint, they're saying that they're finding the solution and creating that fourth carrier out of dish. So uh, you broke down in this uh, piece co-authored with several other economists. Again, the title of it is uh, Assessing DOJ's Proposed Remedy in Sprint T-Mobile. Can Ex-Anti-Competitive Conditions in Wireless Markets Be Restored? Uh, so, yeah, you basically you and other economists broke down why you found this to be insufficient. So right off the bat, why do you think your assessment differs uh, from the DOJ's and the FCC's uh, final remedy here? I, um, uh, I think well, okay. I mean, you, you, you... unduly, unduly optimistic, <laughs> uh, we think they are unduly optimistic, sure. or to use an academic phrase, gee, I wish I knew what they were smoking. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to get some myself. Um uh, that's an, of course, a technical term in of course, economics. Of course, um, uh, that basically, it, even under their most optimistic projection, um, it would take seven years for Dish to uh, really become a full-fledged uh, facilities-based uh, provider of services, and even then, they would only cover seventy percent of the country, whereas Sprint currently uh, uh, covers over 90%. So even after seven years, we don't get as full coverage. We don't get as much competition. In addition, it's going to take a couple of years for DISH even to start becoming a facilities-based provider. In the interim, they are basically just buying um, uh, services from the new merged entity and reselling them. So they're one of these resellers who are at the mercy of the uh, facilities-based provider. And lastly, uh, they they don't have a brand name uh, in the cell phone area. Uh, This is, you know, People sometimes talk about it as a commodity, but it's really not. Brand names matter. You said at the very beginning of the program, there are these two dominant uh, providers, uh, Sprint and T-Mobile, clearly have identifiable brand names as well. This is not a commodity industry. This is not something where uh, G, X is just as good as Y, is just as good as Z. Clearly, consumers care about brand names, and Dish is coming in. It may have a brand name. 
in satellite uh, broadcasting, but not in cell phone service. And so uh, the, the likelihood that it would be a vigorous competitor, that it could achieve the kind of uh, reach, the kind of impact that Sprint with its I think uh, I think it's six. I, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me. Something like sixty million or so customers right now. And remember, Dish is only getting nine from Boost to start out. Uh, if scale matters, Dish ain't got the scale. All right, let's break down the main points of the working paper here. So the part that stood out to me immediately, uh, I've got it in front of me. You'd be surprised. I was at the library the other day. I was I whipped out the uh, the old trusty green highlighter, and I was going to town whoa, on this on this whoa, working paper. Oh, oh, it brings brings <laughs> joy to my heart. <laughs> yes, you would be Makes a proud my professor. Sore like an eagle. Oh yes. So the the parts that stood out to me immediately um, were when you broke down the different markets and how each one. Has a different dynamic at play that could, uh, you know, evolve differently if a T-Mobile Sprint merged and then Dish had to come in and become a player. So those main markets were the wholesale market, the retail market, and then at the more granular level, uh, differences between prepaid services and postpaid services. So if you could give us, um, you know, a brief breakdown of each one of those, describe how a merger between these two companies would affect wholesale specifically in regard to uh, MVNOs, or mobile virtual network operators, and then each of those other markets. Well, actually, well, sure. you know what? Let's, uh, let's, you know, let's start with, with wholesale first. So wholesale specifically right. in regard to those MVNOs. Go ahead and give us your breakdown there, and then we'll move on. Sure. We're in the MVNO. All right. Again, at the wholesale level, you've got the major facilities-based providers reselling – or sorry, selling – to these virtual uh, providers. That's people like Boost, like uh, Cricket, like uh, Consumer Cellular, like uh, Net10, um, who, who do fine, but and, and we're better having them in the market than not. But at the end of the day, they, um, they are dependent on, <coughs> excuse me, the... Uh, facilities-based providers. Now, in that market, um, Sprint and T-Mobile are occupy a much bigger place than they do in the retail in the standard retail market because they've been more aggressive. They've been looking out to see opportunities uh, for resale. Um, and one of the reasons why they've been more aggressive here is, in a sense, they have less to lose in the standard retail market because they are smaller players in the standard retail market. Let them bulk up, and they will have more to lose by being aggressive in that wholesale market. And so, uh, and one of the things that the uh, Justice Department insisted on recognizing what I just said was that there had to be a freezing of prices um, by the new merged entity to the existing MVNOs. That's fine. Oh, and I think that, uh, I think it would last for three years. That's fine. But in fact, prices might well fall otherwise. 
Uh, and so, uh, gee, just uh, saying prices can't go up is is uh, better than nothing, but still uh, doesn't really encompass the likely competitive vigor that would continue if there were four major facilities of providers. And uh, just the, you know, having the aggressiveness to be seeking out new MVNOs or new kinds of contractual arrangements with MVNOs, that's going to get stifled if these two guys merge. Yeah, and the the dynamic that already exists um, between the main carrier and an MVNO uh, already has benefits for the market. Uh, you know, the fact that MVNOs can share or well c- can sell similar spectrum capacity at a lower price uh, for a different consumer uh, that brings. A, a benefit to the market. It allows more people to have access to uh, the spectrum, and you know it. It actually, I think, overall pushes the industry to sl- slowly lower prices uh, because of the the incentives that your consumer would see. It's like, okay, I, I get a similar product here for a little less, um, and you know, I, I think your large sprints, your AT and T's, your Verizon's. Having the MVNOs in the mix in a way that is healthy probably encourages them to lower their prices a bit. Would you agree? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, this is a way that a, a carrier can segment the market. It can retain its normal retail customers um, who are attached to the major carrier brand name and still sell more at effectively a lower price through the MVNO, which has a different brand name, a different identification, can charge a lower price. There'll be some loss of customers, but not as much as if the major carrier offered this alternative service under its own brand name. Then its customers who are paying a higher price for the brand um, first-class offering might well say, hey, why am I paying a higher price? I'm, I'm buying from the same guy. Let me pay the lower price. It's easier for the carrier to pull off this segmentation if it can go through the MVNOs. And so that's a good thing for the market. We think there, w- uh, there will be less of it after the merger. Mm. All right, now on the retail level, what have been the benefits of competition between entities like Sprint and T-Mobile, and what would change in the market at the retail level if they became one? Well, it's, it's, it's clear. There has been competition going over from a pay-per-minute um, pricing plan to a you know, all-you-can-eat type of plan. This was initiated by the smaller guys. Uh, this was something that AT&T and Verizon went over to reluctantly. Uh, so it is the smaller guys who have provided a lot of vigor in the marketplace directly. Uh, let, let me say, I, I want to make sure this, uh, this, this 
uh, gets uh, into into the conversation. Um, in 2011, um, AT and T had wanted to merge with T-Mobile, and the arguments that AT and T and T-Mobile offered at the time were, "Oh, we can't expand. We can't." Uh, provide vigorous competition unless we merge and, oh, T-Mobile is going to fall by the wayside unless we merge. And the Justice Department and Federal Communications Commission at the time wisely turned back that merger. They said, you know, we don't, we don't believe you. And in fact, the Department of Justice and FCC were correct. Uh, what we saw after 2011, was uh, AT&T expanding, T-Mobile not being a faltering carrier, but being a vigorous competitor as well. Uh, at the time, the cutting-edge technology was 4G. They, the merging parties had said, oh, we can't uh, roll out 4G unless we merge. In fact, they rolled out 4G just fine. So one really has to um, uh, take with uh, a lot of grains of salt um, or, you know, whatever other chemical you <laughs> might be interested in, uh, these kinds of claims that, oh, poor us, we can't compete, we can't technologically innovate unless we merge. Mm. So the DOJ remedy proposes that the merger would cut marginal costs by decreasing the marginal cost of each gigabyte of data uh, since they would be able to combine their infrastructure and their spectrum, uh, and therefore that would increase value and quality for the consumer. Um, what would they have to do to meet those promises? Uh, and in the remedy laid out now, um, do you see areas where they would not meet those promises? If so, what are they? How would you fix those? Well, all right. The re again, the remedy is primarily about trying to get DISH right. into the market right. as a vigorous fourth competitor, which, as I said, we have uh, severe doubts about. The question of whether the merger is needed in order for Sprint and T-Mobile to be able to uh, take advantage of each other's spectrum holdings, uh, what you know, the technical term in economics, uh, economies of scale, economies of scope. Uh, I, I, you know, full disclosure, uh, I'm not a technology guy on this sort of thing. Sure. However, I think it's important to mention that uh, Professor uh, Fiona Scott Morton, who's a, a very distinguished economics professor at the Yale Business School, um, was one of the testifying experts for the state attorneys general uh, in the uh, case that you described a few minutes ago, who specifically testified about the uh, prospective cost changes that would accompany the merger. And as I understand her testimony, she says, yes, the merger would achieve cost improvements, 
but those improvements are capable of being achieved by the companies if they remain as standalone entities. And so the net that would happen from the merger is really quite small and not worth the um, deterioration of competition that would accompany it. Mm. So th- that's the that's the cost story as I understand it. So I, I think the major piece of contention here, like you said, is the divestiture. Uh, oof, I tripped over on my word there. Let's try that again. A major piece of contention here is the divestiture to this new dish, right? Dish becoming that fourth carrier. Under the remedy, uh, the merging parties will have to let Dish operate as a reseller of Spectrum for seven years while they set up their own wireless network. And to make this successful, new T-Mobile is going to have to provide transition services to Dish. They're going to have to observe traffic non-discrimination, device non-discrimination. They're going to have to extend uh, MVNO agreements to resellers. So what are the incentives for T-Mobile to he- uh, help out its soon-to-be competitor? Uh, and are the mechanisms well, in place to ensure that that happens? Well, you you know, by saying the words you just said, you provided the answer. <laughs> uh, th- that kind of arrangement uh, goes against the incentives of the merged entity. Why would they want to help? one of their rivals who's trying and this is not like selling uh re, you know a spectrum uh, services to an mvno this is selling stuff to a rival who is trying to become a facility a facilities based um uh, entity not just an mvno so all of the incentive structure for the merged entity would be to make life difficult for DISH in subtle ways. Obviously, they can't do it because they will be under the scrutiny of the Justice Department and the Federal Communications Commission. They will have to be subtle about it, but I'm sure they are quite skilled at being subtle. And and as a general matter, this is the kind of remedy that up till now, the Justice Department for the, uh, in this administration for the past three years has loudly said, we don't believe in these kinds of remedies. The remedies must be structural. Sell off a, a, a line of the business. Sell off facilities, which they're doing in Spectrum. That's right. But the other kinds of cooperative services that involve uh, the merged entity being a nice guy vis-a-vis its major up uh, you know uprising rival in facilities uh, ain't gonna happen ain't gonna happen and the the consequences for if they don't happen uh, I, I believe it's dish will be fined uh, something like two point two billion dollars. It's somewhere in that two billion dollar range. Um, and if, I, if if it fails, if it fails to meet the targets in rolling out its in, own network, uh, rolling out its spectrum based right. uh, services. Does now, does you know, does T Mobile or, or Sprint have any? 
consequences for uh, making Dish's life more difficult as uh, they are building their own fourth network? Well, you know, they, they, the Justice Department could come in and say, you're violating the proposed final judgment. Uh, the Sprint T-Mobile uh, lawyers would, would, of course, say, no, we're not. They would go back and forth. Um, maybe justice might be willing to take them to court. Then it's an even longer process. There's nothing specific uh, in the way of a penalty for uh, T-Mobile Sprint uh, that is spelled out. So, um, you know, it gets the Justice Department into a regulatory role. And again, that is exactly the type of role that the current administration has said they don't want to be in and why they want to be in that role in this particular proposed merger is to us seven economists one of the unsolved mysteries of this case all right last main question for you here professor uh white so um Dish, again, is tasked with building out a new network, uh, and they're going to have to do that in seven years, uh, or they'll be met with billions of dollars of fines. Um, there, yeah, in, 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 and, and, and let me and, point in, out. Oh, no, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Let me point out, you know, $2 billion, that's a big number. Uh, you know, that's 10 digits. Yeah. Nobody likes to write a $2 billion check. <laughs> um, first, um, the... You know, that's the maximum. It might be argued down, uh, but also it might be worth, in a sense, you know, the cost of doing business, uh, paying that price if uh, Dish decides, gee, we are better off holding on to the spectrum. Spectrum generally has been going up in value, holding on to it. And then, you know, finding some other use for it or selling it to somebody, um, this may end up being just a price of doing business. Right, right. So the plan, again, is seven years. Um, and in your paper, which I, I encourage the audience to go give a full read of um, if they really oh, want shucks, the, the, the oh, <laughs> if they want the nitty gritty specifics. But you do uh, list out. Um, you know, some, some potential ways that even that fine might be reduced if, uh, you know, they meet half of it or they meet a, a piece of it, but not necessarily in the seven-year mark, so maybe they get an extension. Or, uh, any Or they say, oh, gee, Sprint T-Mobile, T-Mobile Sprint didn't do all the things that they said they were going to do to help us, and so it wasn't our fault, so we shouldn't have to pay the full amount, da 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 <laughs> right. Yes. And and beyond that, uh, what do you think? And this is just kind of wrap up your thoughts on, on the whole subject. What do you think would happen if, let's say, you know, Dish doesn't achieve becoming the fourth carrier? We, we get the merge T-Mobile Sprint. Dish is now in the process of doing this. You know, we're out seven years and there isn't a substantial fourth carrier. What happens to the market? Uh, how would the market be impacted? How might customers be impacted? What should we be watching out for? 
Well, exactly what the Justice Department said in its complaint. Prices will be higher than they otherwise would be if either the merger were stopped or somehow miraculously Dish had become the vigorous uh, fourth uh, facilities-based competitor. So prices will be higher than they otherwise would have been. And there will be less innovation, innovation in pricing plans, innovation in services than would otherwise be the case. All right. Again, we've been chatting with Professor Lawrence J. White. Professor White, thank you so much for your time on the program today. Professor White is again a Robert Kavesh Professor of Economics at the NYU Stern School of Business. And check out his working paper on this subject. It was published through the NET Institute titled Assessing DOJ's Proposed Remedy in Sprint T-Mobile. Can Ex-Anti-Competitive Conditions in Wireless Markets Be Restored? Professor White, I appreciate the time, and thank you again for that A grade at the beginning of the program. That's, oh, wow. Uh, hey, you know, <laughs> that's going uh, up on the some, wall. Some people think I'm a, I'm a pussycat when it comes to grading, but now nah, I'm really a tough guy. Hey, so, love uh, it. A grade, hey, you earned it. Thank you thank so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity no, to thank talk you to with you. you this morning. Take it easy. Thank okay. you again. Right, right. Bye-bye. All right, folks, we'll be back in a couple minutes with our next, well, not a couple minutes, more like 30 seconds here. We'll be back very soon with our next guest. We'll be chatting with Hugh Odom here in one second. We are now joined on the line by Hugh Odom, president of Vertical Consultants, which is a cell tower consulting firm. He was also a former attorney of 10 years for AT&T's Western U.S. region. So Hugh Odom is coming on the program here to give us the inside the industry perspective on how are people dealing with this proposed merger? Are they bullish on it? Are they bearish on it? Uh, How might the market itself uh, react initially? What would happen if we do get down to three key players and a dish that's having to be revitalized here in the next uh, seven years? So again, we're chatting with Hugh Odom, president of Vertical Consultants. Hugh, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Thank you, Daniel. Hey, Hugh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Pretty good Tuesday for you so far? Yes, yes. Good, 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 good. All right. Well, Hugh, let's just jump right in. We've got about 20 minutes here to break this down. So let's start at a a broad eagle eye level. Why are Sprint and T-Mobile merging in the first place? I I know Sprint is in a bit of some debt, which is part of it. um, But if you've got any other perspectives here to break down and and give us that, um, that context, what are the reasons that the companies are wanting to be brought together uh, and, you know, in their argument for helping the market in merging? Well, I think that the primary, as you mentioned, is, is Sprint's instability with regards to not only present day 
situations uh, financially, but also long term. And most people focus on that and they say, well, Sprint needs a partner. And that is true. Uh, they need a partner to be able to compete. They need a partner to be able to kind of stabilize themselves in the marketplace. Uh, that is definitely the case. But the other part of this where people really aren't focusing on as much is T-Mobile needs a partner as well. T-Mobile, while being well ahead of Sprint in the, the race between the carriers, is, is lagging behind AT&T and Verizon. And in the ramp up for 5G and beyond, there is going to be substantial capital investment and substantial need to keep up with the lead the lead pack dogs in, in the race, and that being, again, AT&T and Verizon. So whereas Sprint needs a, a partner to stay viable with regards to financial component, the bigger issue here, I think, is that people are overlooking T-Mobile needs a partner as well uh, to make sure it can be a third player in the marketplace with regards to the wireless industry and to prevent, and this is one of the reasons, a counter argument that's being made with regards to um, you know people looking at this and saying, well, we're taking one carrier, one, one participant out of the industry. If you don't get a, a partner lined up with either T-Mobile or Sprint or, or having those two partners together, what you'll end up with is you'll have you'll have a situation by which Sprint goes away on its own. T-Mobile is basically so far lagging behind AT&T and Verizon that basically you have a duopoly and you have two major competitors in the market and they control everything from from pricing down to the consumer to the infrastructure builders, the cell tower companies, et cetera, that provide the infrastructure, they have such control over the market that um, that we get to an uncompetitive nature. So I think one of the things here is look at the Sprint component of this and see why it's needed for Sprint, but also look at why this is needed for T-Mobile as well. Mm. So, yeah, so part of their main argument then is that AT&T and Verizon already have such a control of the market that for there to be competition, they need to merge, basically, to to become a third competitive player to to really help drive uh, quality, innovation, and pricing. That's one of the one of these one of the ways to look at this, and one of the arguments that can be made is that without some partnership in in any way, you're going to have a again a situation by which you don't have a legitimate Third, third legitimate carrier in the marketplace that can compete again with regards to the, to the big two players. In addition, you know, if, if you said to me, "Well, you know, you're getting you're down from four to three, I think one of the, the things, the other things that you looked at is that that it does open the door, and I think part of any kind of approval for the the, the merger would be opening a lot of doors, breaking down some of the entries to barriers or barriers to entry, I should say for a fourth, a fourth tier um, or fourth competitor to come in. I think that's going to be part of it. Any, any deal that's made, that's my, my, my belief, uh, that any, any approval will be part of that approval will be that a fourth carrier uh, will be available to enter in the market, gain some market share, and provide competition that is uh, kind of lacking from a fourth competitor when they merge or go down to three. Mm. 
So how are people within the industry feeling about this potential merger? Are they relatively bullish on their sentiments uh, outside of being, you know, within T-Mobile and Sprint? I'm sure T-Mobile and Sprint are obviously excited about this, but for everyone else in the telecom industry, what are their thoughts? And I mean, well, I, 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 I know obviously you can't, you can't, no, well, I was going to say, I know you can't speak for everyone, obviously. So if you want to start with your own general thoughts on it, that's fine. But just based on some conversations you may have had or, uh, you know, general industry perspective. Yeah, I think with regards to my thoughts, I think what's happened over the last several months to years with regards to this merger, it's been used in the industry for a lot of different ways. Is <laughs> this information or this potential merger has been used a lot of different ways uh, for of some of some participants in the industry? It's 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 kind of people look at the carriers, they see those because. When you turn on the TV, you see commercials for AT and T, Verizon, T-Mobile, uh, Sprint. I mean, they're just—you're inundated with this. But the industry is so large in the sense where it flows down to the infrastructure builders, which most people would re- refer to as the as the the cell tower companies, which are the, the largest com- uh, competitors there are, are um, uh, Crown Castle, right. uh, American Tower, and SBA Communications, and. They've looked at it. They've looked at kind of a, in those three big uh, publicly traded REITs have looked at it as a way kind of to see how do we make sure if we do go, go down to a three carrier um, uh, industry, how do we make sure that we can maintain our our profitability because you're losing revenue possibly on a grander scale from one of the one of those one of those carriers. They look at it as well. How do we make sure that part of this is again trying to get additional additional revenue from different sources, a, a fourth a fourth uh, a fourth uh, industry player like a, a Dish Network coming into the market, which that we can talk about in this conversation, and they're looking at that as a possible way. But the other way they're looking at this is that for them, these these cell tower companies, and that's where we're our primary focus of our company is 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 then we work with property owners around the United States and negotiating and new deals and, and restructuring existing. The, the tower companies have looked at it as a way to go back and have a way to put some, I guess, some, some a little bit of doubt in the property owner's mind of saying, hey, these towers may not be out here, so you need to do you need to restructure your agreements with us. So they're using it as a way to renegotiate or down or uh, downcost their existing um, rents they're, they're paying to property owners. And they're using the speculation as almost like the sky is falling. And in some ways, maybe the best thing for the industry, for the, the tower companies, is this merger. Again, they, they're, they're, they're kind of spending in a way this is going to be a, a downturn to them. But if, if the merger happens in a way that, again, as I mentioned earlier, allows for entry, brings down those barriers of entry to other uh, carriers, opening up those ability to the federal government saying, hey, you need to allow the use of certain assets you have, ATT, Verizon, T-Mobile, et cetera, and allow some of these carriers to bring in, come in and gain a foothold because we want everything to be competitive. That opens up the door for cell tower companies to have more more occupants on their towers, mm-hmm. more revenue being generated. Because what what all cell tower companies are is kind of we I use the analogy of it is a situation by which 
it's almost like a, 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 a interstate highway system. They're building out this huge highway across the United States, but they're not on the ground. There are these cell towers, and and so you know the the, the best scenario for a cell tower company is to have as many cars using those those roadways as possible, as many many parties out there using their cell towers. So for 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 in one way, this is looked upon as a negative for the cell tower companies. They can they can look at it that way. Um, they can say, "Hey, we're downturning, going from four to three. They're, they can use that as a way to go back to renegotiate um, existing uh, agreements they have with ground owners, rooftop space, etc. Which we we adequately tell our our client to say, "Don't don't fall for this because we believe it's more of an upturn than it's a downturn." Uh, they can use it as a positive, and if they can push the right buttons, they can make this to be an, an advantageous situation for the for the, the cell tower company. So the, the industry is kind of looking at this as a it, depending on how everything rolls out. The industry is looking at it the greatest probability of everything getting approved, but with concessions that or conditions, as you say, conditions put in that allows for additional carriers to enter the market at a later time or in the very near future. Um, and that will kind of have a little bit of a kind of a pullback and then a ramp up because the one thing we I think everybody in the industry agrees that um, the the need for wireless services, the need for the companies to provide it, the need for infrastructure to be built, um, all due to data usage, et cetera, is not is not dwindling; it's expanding. So my personal thought is that. You know, this is kind of be a little bit of a pullback, kind of like a take a step back and then be able to take three steps very quickly forward on, on the on the how this will roll out for everybody in the long term. Uh, how the industry is looking at it, um, I think in in the grander scheme, I always say look at look at look at spending. How how the infrastructure companies are are spending? Are they pulling back because they believe there's going to be less um, less uh, uh, less uh, revenue sources out there? No, they're building more and more. They are securing their assets in these cell towers. They do have the, the rooftop agreement. They do have. They are secure, spending more and more money to secure those sites. So it'd be it'd be foolish for them to put more capital into an industry they believe is going to become less advantageous for them. Um, and I think they're looking at it as a as a little bit of a maybe a again a negative but a a, a bigger uh, asset for them in the future a bigger uh, ability to take advantage of this in the in the future because uh, with the carriers i think at and t uh, sorry at and t and verizon uh the the they're looking at it as geez they wish everything would just stay <laughs> the way it is uh because they think they can outrun out go faster than everybody uh, especially the T-Mobile and Sprint and the smaller uh, companies out there like a Dish Network. And if everything stayed the way it is right now, they believe they would not only outrun everybody, they would outlast everybody. And ultimately, you'd be down to two, uh, two carriers that control everything from what is out there, who, how they price with regards to uh, using infrastructure like cell towers and even they would have the advantage advantage of being one or two. They could there were no other competition out there for these these uh, these uh, infrastructure companies to really uh, work off of. 
and that and also that would flow all the way down to uh, consumers because if the if you have a limited amount of competition and you only, and you end up with one or two or two I should say major competitors and control the vast majority of the market it not only it not only goes down the line all the way to how much it's going to services are going to cost you from you know down to how much 5g will cost you to be implemented into your into your daily lives of your phone and other wireless devices but also what areas get 5g how fast things get built out how investment gets made et cetera et cetera because they they control it so uh, I think the the industry from the 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 carriers, the carriers would, I believe, AT&T and Verizon would love it to stay the same. I think T-Mobile and Sprint need it to happen. I think part of that will be, if it does happen, will be a uh, entry or the barriers of entry for a fourth or more uh, competitors to be uh, influxed into the, the market in the in the near term. The cell tower companies will take this as a little bit of a hit, but also I think in the long term it will be advantageous for them. And ultimately, I think. If it all pans out correctly, the bottom line consumer of services will get the benefit of being able to have a decent amount of competition. That competition will, will not only result in, in moderate pricing of services, but also a faster uh, and uh, more advantageous rollout of services, not only in the higher margin areas, the higher margin areas being the metro areas, but also rural areas, et cetera. The barrier of entry points that you bring up are, are interesting, um, you know, mostly because the DOJ's remedy uh, to their initial concerns with the merger uh, are to basically create a fourth carrier uh, out of Dish Network, make Dish Network become um, that fourth competitor. Uh, T-Mobile Sprint, now merged, would divest uh, some of their spectrum to Dish as Dish builds out its own network and then becomes a, a potentially viable fourth carrier. Um, do you think that with a merger like this, the uh, the ability for a, a fifth or more carriers to come into the market, would those barriers of entry be really open to Anyone that can invest in that infrastructure, uh, is it going to have to be another kind of uh, like industry-led creation of a fifth carrier? Because Dish becoming a carrier isn't really a, a natural creation. It's one that's being manufactured to make sure that there remains some kind of uh, competition with a you know four major carriers. So do you foresee that? that kind of uh, incentive to get into the market would become more natural if there was a merged T-Mobile Sprint and a Dish as a fourth carrier? Well, I think that's looking a little further down the line, but I think it would be. I mean, the reason I think it would be is that it's going to depend upon many things, but I think the big thing is going to be how Dish how Dish's rollout um, eventually happens and how successful it is, how they do it with regards to if they can do it on their own, or they need to partner with uh, another another company to make themselves viable. And what I mean by that is maybe a, a technology company like a uh, an Apple or Google or whoever somewhere in that that realm. If if that happens, 
then and and their and dish becomes a, a viable for competitor, then it does. I believe my personal thoughts are it does provide the ability for, like you said, an unnatural birth of a fifth or sixth uh, competitor. That's a little further down the line, but. I think the big thing there is that where we're striving for, I think where we're going to, where the, these companies are striving to be in, is you're talking about you know the AT&T Verizon's of the world, the T-Mobile Sprint's of the world, the Dish Networks of the world. But the first four, the main competitors right now, are service providers. Where you're in, where this is going to end up, I believe, down the road, far further down the road, is that. Your, your service providers and your content providers have to come together. And that's what AT&T and Verizon's main mission is, to become both hand-in-hand service and, and content providers. And so that does it open up for not a service provider, natural service provider, but a content provider to become a service. And so that's where I think the next, the, the fifth may come from, where you have an unnatural birth of a content provider, but they get into the service industry. And then you get... And you get this, um, you get this fifth fifth competitor out there. You know, it's previously a few years ago or several years ago, you had you know the, the Metro PCSs, the Clearwires, et cetera. They were their issue was that they tried to start up and then they they just couldn't you couldn't you know they didn't have the capital, they couldn't get the steam behind them because they were just service. They were just service, and they were they were they were competing and they were trying to compete against the the big boys and the, and the big boys not only controlled the rules of the game, they had all the assets in the game too. And so, um, but if you have a content provider that can either partner with the service provider, like a dish, or you have a, a content provider who has the capability, both financial capability, but also the, 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 the long-term financial capability and long-term plan to add service to its content, then I think that that's where you get a fifth a fifth uh, carrier in the in the mix. All right, Hugh. To kind of begin to wrap up some of the conversation here, um, you had mentioned a bit about uh, infrastructure. Uh, I, I feel like we we got a good perspective here on how. Uh, cell tower operators and how that side of the industry might be affected by a potential merger. Uh, Give us kind of a a quick bullet point, positive and negative, of a potential merger for each of these main uh, tiers of the market. So we've got carriers, we've got the infrastructure operators, and we've got consumers. So if you had to give kind of your brief rundown, bullet point list of, of your positives and your negatives for a potential merger in each of those tiers, what would they be and why? Well, with regards to carriers, the the, the positives of a the positives of a, a potential merger would be that you get th- you get three strong competitors that are able to move forward 5G, provide the capital, provide the ability to, to move out, and you have a a, a long term goal of of competition amongst those. I think that's beneficial for everybody, and I think it's beneficial for everybody in the industry. The, the negative of a the negative of a merger um, for 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 the the industry is that you do get into a, which you have a um, if you get down the road and you have multiple competitors multiple multiple uh, carriers you get into a dilution of of getting situations by which you have unviable long-term uh, uh, companies out there. And that's what we got into with the Clearwire and the Metro PCS that I, I mentioned. So it has to be on any merger, 
again, I think mergers with concessions, what's going to happen is that you have to make sure that you have a situation by which it provides a benefit, but it provides not just a benefit in the short term, it provides a benefit in the long term. The, the negative with a merger would be that if you do a merger and you open it and you open up the the, uh, the, the gates to allow additional carriers out there, that you have additional carriers that really don't provide the uh, long term, and then you have a, uh, you know you have expansion and consolidation. We the, the the telecom industry has gone through expansions, consolidations, expansion, consolidations because they have good good uh, motives and they just horrible execution on most of these things. So it, I think that's the that's the downside of a merger. If it even if you do have expansion, does the expansion have a foundation to be long term viable uh, for? for the industry and for more, more particularly the consumer. All right, Hugh, we've, we've, to, we've got about a minute left here. So if you don't mind, uh, just hit me real quick with those positives, negatives on infrastructure and consumers to uh, wrap up your thoughts here. Sure, sure. Infrastructure with regards to uh, cell tower companies, I think the, the positive would be that long-term you have more competitors uh, in the industry, uh, which generates more revenue, more stability for assets. The, the, negative, the negative would be that if right in the short term, you have the possibility of going down to a, a lower amount of competitors out there, competition, and that means lower revenue. Uh, with regards to the uh, consumer, uh, the, the positive would be that if you merge, you have more viable uh, carriers that can put more money into the, in the market with regards to build out, means better services for property, for, sorry, for consumers. And the, sh- the short, sorry, the negative would be that if you have a merger, that you have a situation in the short term, again, you have a less competition, could mean lower, uh, slower rollout of certain things like 5G and higher pricing for services as well. All right, Hugh Odom, president of Vertical Consultants, thank you again for your thoughts on that inter-industry perspective on this potential merger. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Again, that was Hugh Odom, president of Vertical Consultants. They are a cell tower consulting firm, and he was a former attorney of 10 years for AT&T's Western U.S. region. So he really does have that that legal perspective here on how a lot of this might play out. All right. To wrap up the show, per usual, we're bringing on John Baer. He is a digital marketing strategist here at MarketScale and a policy enthusiast, self-proclaimed. Uh, He's going to be giving us a a quick bear brief here. We've got about two and a half minutes, John, so let's make it quick. John, how you doing? Thanks for having me, Daniel. Always a pleasure to be in the studio. Always. All right, John, so quick bear brief on this. What are your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, when you're dealing with a merger that's been this long between two massive companies like T-Mobile and Sprint, of course, you know, I always want to take it to a higher place, and I kind of want to look at, you know, the overarching picture of, you know, how this debate has been framed from two perspectives and then kind of try to determine where we think the long-term outcome is going to be. And I'm going to throw in my own little wrinkle too, you know, given my upbringing, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, how I think this is interesting, how it impacts rural broadband and rolling that out. And, you know, really when we boil everything down, right, it comes down to that old debate. It happens every time you have an antitrust suit of any kind. Uh, You know, what is the true benefit here? Is it going to be the increased ability to uh, provide innovation that these uh, you know companies claim that they're going to have or mm. is it going to be the increased prices that the states are claiming are going to fall down on consumers you know it's an interesting question 
I do have to say that my hot take is I'm not 100% certain I agree in any way with the company's perspective on uh, how Dish is going to be a stable competitor or a fourth competitor in the marketplace. Um, you know, I was actually, I was just reading an Ars Technica article, and here, I'll go ahead and pull this up here. If anybody's interested in following up on this one, it's by John Brodkin. And John, I apologize if I just butchered your name. <laughs> People butcher mine all the time. They sure do. I, I really feel you, man. But uh, yeah, he was writing and uh, he was quoting in particular that uh, only a small fraction of the merged company's assets, that is Sprint and T-Mobile, would be sold to Dish. Dish has no experience in the wireless market and a history of broken promises. So goodness, I mean, I just can't imagine that even in half a decade, a decade, it would be truly you know, viable as a company. But uh, then the other perspective, of course, I had mentioned the rural broadband element. Uh, you know, it's been interesting in the news recently, we've had the rural broadband uh, bill coming out of the FCC. I can't remember exactly, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. And the idea being that the FCC is looking for coverage on how we can roll out broadband to more of these non-urban environments. So. I actually find it really difficult to follow the line of thinking behind the companies looking to merge here. Really, to me, it seems that there is coverage from the government in the form of funding, in the form of bill. But also, it really is kind of a desperate play, right? Uh, you know, on The Motley Fool, they were actually just talking about how T-Mobile is a strong and viable company, economically speaking. Maybe they're going to have some innovation troubles, AT&T and Verizon are behemoths. But at the end of the day, Sprint is a failing company, $44 billion in debt, um, half a decade of net losses reported, sans one year. Um, you know, it seems to me a pretty clear situation where it's just looking for a way out. And, uh, you know, if, it, if I had to encapsulate it all, those would be the hot take opinions. But yeah. I'm interested to see how this ruling comes down. Yeah, and I mean, to avoid being the one that gives the hot takes as much as I do love giving my hot takes, uh, you know, it really does feel like we're seeing Sprint and T-Mobile grasping for air at the end of a, I mean, I, I'd i say a successful lifeline, but I mean, and yes, like you said, in the last several years, not as successful. They have been struggling, strapped for cash, they are in debt, and this is that final attempt to say, hey, you know what, if we combine our assets, we can be saved and we can be another viable competitor. Um However, I mean, it does feel like if they go this route, we are going to be left with three major players, and in the short term, we are going to have only three players, and Dish is going to have some kind of rebrand that just basically uh, takes wholesale a chunk of new T-Mobile's spectrum, and not only do they have to build a positive brand in seven years that creates enough consumer confidence that they are going to be a viable fourth competitor, but in the immediate short term, um, consumers are going to have to take a bet on Dish that they don't have any experience with as a, uh, uh, as a wireless carrier, and we're just going to have to be told they are good and go with it. And that is very behavioral, like uh, Professor White was saying. It's not really a total structural shift. It is a behavioral one in many ways, and it's contingent on a lot of things going right. And, uh, you know, it it's... I think there are enough people concerned with this um, that it should have us paying attention at least 
if this does go through here in the next several weeks, then we're going to be in a situation where we've got three main carriers and, and DISH is now going to have to be responsible for building out a fourth and powerful network basically out of thin air in seven years, which, um, you know, in the lifespan of a business is not really that long. So they're going to have to, you know, put the, uh, put the pedal to the floor and make it happen. But I am, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll avoid giving my opinion for now. I'll, I'll let you give the take. I'm a little skeptical, but, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, here's the real question that I think if it comes down to DISH needing to become competitive in a seven-year period, who's going to hold them accountable to that? Um, you know, that's that's tricky. That's a ton of infrastructural investment. And, you know, honestly, to uh, I, I can't remember who gave this quote when I was doing research, but uh, roll up the sleeves and compete. Um, you know, maybe that's what DISH needs to do. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, if it's going to be a behavioral choice, too, I feel like that happens with a lot of folks. I, I won't name carriers here. I won't, like, show a bias. I, I am with one of these folks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about switching to another. Um, you know, and, and frankly, it's going to be on behavior, too. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, as a consumer, particularly as ones who aren't, uh, you know, experts in these issues, you know, most of consumers, I think 99.9% .9 are going to be complete laymen on these issues. You know, the hope is just that we have uh, you know, state entities and we have government actors that have our best interests at heart in one way or the other. And, you know, hopefully we can just all fingers crossed expect this thing to land well for us in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, ho hopefully prices do not go up. Um, but I, I think it is fairly um, non hot take ish. I'm losing the actual official word here, what I'm trying to say. But regardless, I, I don't think it's a hot take to say that in the short term, if we do get this merger, we're only going to have three key players, and that does pose a potential risk to higher costs. Um, and, you know, the, the incentive for higher quality is not there as much because there are less players. Now, if we stick with what we've got, we've got two really solid players and then another two that are falling behind, which would be Sprint and T-Mobile, and then the solid ones being AT&T Verizon. So, you know, I'm not necessarily saying things need to stay exactly the way they are. Uh, however, with this merger, we are going to see in the short term only three players, which usually means, uh, when you look back at antitrust law in the United States, typically means prices will at least go up a little bit, um, and, you know, the incentives really have to be there for them to retain or improve quality in any capacity. So, we will have to see. Knock we will have wood. to see. Knock on wood. Okay, John Bear, thank you so much for giving us your Bear Brief. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Ratified. We went a little long, per usual. Sorry. I'm going to have to, I don't know, start uh, start just blocking more time for this or trimming up the conversations. But I can't. They're such good conversations, aren't they? So, again, we spoke with Professor Lawrence J. White. He's a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. We also spoke to Hugh Odom, president of Vertical Consultants. Make sure you check them out online. And thank you again for listening. Make sure you follow along at my Twitter. That's at Voice of B2B. B, the letter, to the number, B, the letter. Uh, also, follow at MarketScale. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a DM with any thoughts on story ideas or big scoops you may have. And we will be back in a, probably about two weeks with another episode 
of Ratified. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Hasta luego.